This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Toronto Film Festival. Talking Before Smiting. And The Satanic Panic. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is celebrating their recent Kickstarter success. You're talking about the Kickstarter for the new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of Weird Urban Danger? Indeed, and dear listeners, you're invited to join other backers by pre-ordering the game via BackerKit. I'm putting on my state-sponsored party hat as we speak. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, murderous assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the game for you. Over the Edge is coming to game stores in 2019, but you can pre-order on BackerKit now at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. It's exactly the same Alamarha you always knew. Only this time, it's different. The whir of the projector has been replaced by the whisper of digital lasers of some kind, and the smell of popcorn is much more high-end. It's probably got the fancy cheese on it and stuff. The floors are <laughs> clean and not sticky at all, but I'll tell you what's the same, Robin. That beam of light stabbing through the darkness over our heads as we nestle into the center seats for the Cinema Hut. And we're back, and you can tell because everything was nice and shiny that you have gone to the Palace of Cinema, the pinnacle, may I say, of cinema, the Toronto International Film Festival, of which all other film festivals are but an empty sham and a hollow japery. And you're bringing back to us uh, not just the best of the film fest, much of which includes grown-up films for grown-up people, but also uh, the weird, new, exciting, great films that are also genre or somehow uh, appropriate for our listeners specifically. And uh, you said that the, this last year, you had sort of a lackluster time at the greatest experience in cinema, but this year, bammo, roaring back. Yes. Uh, last year, there were zero pinnacles. Uh, this year, there are five pinnacles. Five pinnacles, ladies and uh, gentlemen. That's a lot a, of pinnacles. A, a misalignment of, of, the, of the force of cinema in which... Uh, all of the uh, great directors, or in this case, uh, four great directors and uh, a, a new discovery, which is always great to have in the pinnacle uh, department, they all synchronize themselves. So I hope that hope. filmmakers desynchronize themselves for next year or otherwise, because you don't want only every uh, even numbered year to be good. Because no, you do not. It's dispiriting. You, you don't want it to be like Star Trek. Yes, it's dispiriting to go right. to 44, 45 films in a row and have the, have them. You know, some of them recommendable, but nothing. Nothing that just knocks your socks off and re restates the art form for you. Whereas this, the and the overall level was really high too. Also, many fewer uh, things that are classified du as duds than any other year. And uh, good, good, yeah. Uh, and and it was not just me saying that it was a banner year. The the of course the TIFF gets a lot of uh, press coverage, and the press corps is looking at a completely different slate of films. They're looking at the films that are uh, mostly already set for release to see right, which Right, all the ones... fancy films that big yeah. Hollywood stars are in. 
Right. So, uh, just very briefly, uh, if you're looking for things that will be in your, in your multiplexes soon, uh, there was big buzz around, uh, A Star is Born. Uh, apparently, uh, you can't make a bad version of that because, uh, nope. all, all, the four previous ones are all good and it's a bulletproof fifth- plot. Yeah. It's all down to casting. That's why they didn't do it in the nineties. Exactly. Every 20 years, you get a star is born. Uh, if Beale Street could talk uh, by Barry Jenkins, his follow up to Moonlight got rapturous response. Uh, Widows by, uh, Steve McQueen, uh, mm-hmm. First Man, uh, the Neil Armstrong biopic by Damien Chazelle, uh, Roma by, uh, Alfonso Coron, which is going to be on, uh, Netflix. And also the Green Book came out of nowhere to, uh, snag a lot of praise and the Audience Award, which often presages, uh, Oscar nominations and, and mm-hmm. sometimes an Oscar win. Uh, so, uh, there's lots of, uh, cool mainstream stuff, uh, coming out that got, uh, a big fuss. But my usual, you know, attempt in a, in any given slot is to program things that either don't have distribution yet or might have a fairly limited release that I might miss amongst the busyness of fall. So, uh, right. these are the cool sort of, uh, art house or lesser known titles that you, uh, dear listeners, uh, can, uh, uh, look out for over the next, uh, some things that played at TIFF have already had the actual releases, but most of them will come out in the next year or so, either theatrically and then on streaming and sometimes on disc or, uh, uh, they might go straight to streaming. Who knows? Who can say? It's a magical new ecosystem, and it's being shaken up by a giant meteor as we speak. Yes. It's never been easier to see cool, obscure movies, and, and we are here to tell you, or I'm here to tell you, which ones to see. And it's apparently never been harder to run a movie studio, so ha-ha, take that. <laughs> um, uh, the magical uh, journey, I guess, begins with a magical journey, except it's not a magical journey, it's a science journey, uh, because we're talking about Aniara, a Swedish film by Pella Kegerman and Hugo Lilia, who are not directors I know anything about. Are they new to you, or are these the, the new They were uh, definitely new to me. On the block? Uh, yes. Uh, so this is a, a pair of directors. Uh, they were there at the screening. Uh, Pella Kagerman was, uh, visibly pregnant. There's a theme of pregnant directors this year. Uh, perhaps in keeping <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. The directors all had oxytocin floating around in them. That's why the films are so good. Perhaps so. Uh, so this, this is, uh, and this was really a discovery because it's something that, uh, one of those films where you don't know where it's going and, uh, it's okay. Where are we going to settle in? And it keeps changing where it's going and it keeps, Oh, are they doing this? Oh no. Are they doing, uh, I can't believe they're doing this. And so wow, to, be, uh, to it, be taken by surprise by that is not that common for experienced cineasts. Uh, right. And so this is, it's based on an epic science fiction poem, uh, which apparently is, uh, routinely, uh, assigned in Swedish, uh, classrooms, uh, and it is about a, uh, the, the world, uh, needs to be abandoned. And so humans are, uh, uh, getting, uh, off their, uh, ecologically ravaged, uh, planet and, uh, they are going to Mars. And so, uh, there's a group of people who are all traveling, uh, on this, uh, luxury transport that's going to take them three weeks to get from Earth to Mars. And, uh, the first sort of brilliant thing about this film is that the spaceship uh, doesn't feel like the sort of, uh, antiseptic 2001 ship or the, uh, beaten down Star Wars ships, but rather it's a giant flying mall slash airport. It feels like you're, you know, traveling to Mars in the Frankfurt airport. And, uh, and that alone as a concept would be a fun and interesting thing to explore for the course of uh, a film. But that is just 
there's maybe, you know, eight or nine different acts with actual title cards, uh, because the, the ship, uh, sadly, uh, due to a, an accident, uh, goes off course and, Ooh, uh, that's not good. This follows the, uh, hard science rules. And so, uh, the, uh, passengers on the ship and the, uh, the crew are in, uh, big, big trouble and, uh, uh, they change and evolve as the ship continues to go uh, further and further off course. And uh, you could reference uh, uh, Kubrick a bit, uh, of course, and uh, also there's sort of a J.G. Ballard sense of uh, societal breakdown, but this directing team has their own very uh, distinct uh, tone and flavor, and so this was the real discovery of something that just uh, came out of nowhere and and uh, surprised me with how uh, great it was. Uh, the next pinnacle titles are all by established directors who, uh, you know, you're always glad to see when someone's firing in all pistons, but none of the rest of these were like, oh, I didn't expect this to be great because, well, you're about to hear the names of the directors. It sounds a little bit like Silent Running, right? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a little a bit of that vibe. That doesn't feel like a spaceship it's on a, and it's off course and Earth is ruined and... Kind of that, except there's like a million people in a food court instead of a beautiful garden, right? Right. Um, well, but silent running is all, is about isolation mm-hmm. and, you know, one person alone with his robots. And this is all about, uh, you know, societal collapse or, or not. Yeah. Who can say? Well, obviously, uh, check it out. Find out, um, uh, how many Bruce Stern callouts there are. The next one is our old buddy Zhang Yimou. Uh, Chinese director, uh, of great and powerful work. And now, uh, this one is, uh, set when? Set, set when in Chinese history? It's called Shadow, by the way. Look, don't bury the lead, Ken. That's terrible of you. Yeah. So this is set during, during the, the Warring States period. And, and, uh, as is often the case in Chinese cinema, does a quite fanciful version of, of history. Uh, it's not quite a fantasy film, but there are things that happen in this film. Uh, with the, uh, the weaponry and so forth that, uh, well, I think it's safe to say did not happen in actual history. And in fact, some things that have never happened before in cinema. So there are particular scenes, uh, where your jaw just goes, oh, am I seeing this? Is this what I'm looking at? Yes, apparently it is. Um, so this is a film that, uh, stands toe to toe with his previous martial arts films, uh, Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Uh, the plot line basically is that there's an imposter who's been raised and trained for years to take the place of a warlike commander who was wounded in a duel uh, with the uh, champion of the enemy king. And so there's uh, the uh, king of, of this kingdom uh, seems like the typical foppish uh, idiot that you often see in uh, Chinese and Korean cinema the the king who ought not to be a king but he turns out to be a little smarter than uh, than he's letting on and so the first uh big chunk of the film is the court intrigue uh, between all of uh, the different uh, uh people involved here like for example the uh wife of the general who has an imposter in her bed well guess what uh, she starts to uh have feelings about the uh the young robust uh, imposter as opposed to her uh, weird, shaggy, hermit-like, wounded, uh, actual husband. Uh, but at any rate, the, uh, intrigue goes on for a little Not while. Not good news for those of us who are more shaggy and hermit-like than we might be. Yes. But then, uh, in the second half or so, everything goes bananas. Um, the visually, it's an incredible feast. The film, uh, all, it's shot in color, but 
all of the sets and the costumes are uh, grayscale. And so uh, it is basically, you know, a, a color black and white film, of course, until you get to the battle sequences and then it becomes black and white and red all over. But it's just, there's stuff in it that's, uh, again, uh, there are surprises in it. Learn as little about it before you see it. Just just see it because then because uh, you'll be the able guy to that be... made a hero and it's going to be excellent. That's why yes. I see it. You're, you're in for gobsmacking. Right. Uh, moving from uh, ancient China to modern day Japan, uh, we get Shoplifters by Hirokazu Koreeda. And is this a, a crime film with a family element or a family film with a crime element? Because it's about shoplifters. It is a family film with a crime element. It's a low-income family sort of kind of adopts this girl they find. She's being abused. And they just take her to her place and don't inform the parents. And the parents don't call the authorities. And so it's just at at first it seems like it's, you know, they're poor. um, And they supplement their income by shoplifting, as the title would imply. Uh, But uh, as it goes along, uh, the... Uh, true nature of the family is revealed, and uh, it turns out to be dysfunctional. But this is a, a touching uh, family drama from uh, a director who's uh, turned in other uh, really great films over the years. And again, so not it's a literally surprise. about childhood and loss. Uh, it is about childhood and loss, absolutely. Yeah, there we um, go. So, so this is our grown-up movie for grown-up people that nonetheless is so great uh, that you c- should see it, even if normally you prefer just genre stuff. Right. Uh, and now the words that everyone wants to see in a film festival listing, South Korea, uh, burning, uh, directed by Lee Chang Dong, uh, which is, uh, you describe it as a suspense film, but you're not even saying what kind of suspense film it is because you're that cagey. You're playing it that close to the vest. What can we tell people to make them see it besides South Korea? Yes. That's also because it does not quite ever reveal what kind of suspense film it is. It's based on a short story by, uh, Haruki Murakami. So, uh, ambiguity is the, uh, watchword of the day. The real villain is ambiguity. Well, something happens to somebody, but is, is he the real villain? That's the, that's, uh, that, that's the question. Or, or is she the real villain? Um, and so basically better. it's a story of a, a young guy who sees himself as a writer. Uh, he has to go back to work on his, uh, uh dad's crummy farm because his dad is up on assault charges. Uh, he falls for a, uh, a girl who uh, remembers him from high school, but he doesn't remember her because she said she, she's had plastic surgery. He falls for her. She goes off on vacation. Oh my god, this sounds great already. You literally now I now I, I I'm seeing like forty of it in my head, but I'm sure that the real one is even better. Uh, and uh, so she goes off on vacation. He uh, is set to babysit her cat in her apartment. He never sees a cat in her apartment. Well, that's not suspicious. <laughs> uh, she comes back from uh, Nairobi uh, with a new friend who she met in the airport there while they were stuck uh, during a bombing. They bonded. And it's a, a super rich dude uh, played by uh, the Korean-American actor, Stephen Yen, who you uh, may know from uh, The Walking Dead. And he, it is an, he does an amazing performance. It is one of the all-time great uh, performances, uh, I think without giving anything away, it's, uh, okay to describe him as, uh, a, uh, sociopath because <laughs> in like the second scene he appears, he basically describes himself as such. Yeah. It's, it's just an, an amazing performance and like a different, uh, version of that character than, than you've ever seen before. Uh, but then, you know, things get weird. More stuff happens. More stuff happens. It's all, um, 
it's and it's not like a thriller in sense of being a pulse pounding like there's no uh, pounding soundtrack there's no real action sequences per se just it's a all a constant turn of the screw what is really going on so it, it is truly a psychological uh, thriller and is handled uh, with such an amazing subtlety uh, uh lee did a film a few years ago called poetry that was my favorite film of tiff that year and now burning is one of my favorite films uh, this year and this one because of its uh, noir subject matter as i think is probably more accessible to cardis listeners all right including cardis co-hosts uh, you will dig this film uh and now we go from a doomed spaceship to a doomed spaceship yes um uh, high life france claire denis of all people uh, making a spaceship movie would not have seen that coming in a million years with Robert Pattinson in it. Speaking of things I would not have seen coming, but tell me Claire Denis and Robert Pattinson don't um, just spend the whole movie looking at how great Robert Pattinson looks, but do other cool stuff. Uh, well, first of all, he's, he's a bit banged up in this because oh, that, that's what the kids like now. Oh, it's and it, another great performance. Uh, but he and uh, Juliette Binoche, who was in a bunch of who's in three different films that uh, that I saw this year, someone stalking someone, are among the crew of death row inmates who have agreed to go off into space on what is likely a suicide mission as an alternative to being executed for their crimes at home. Uh, and at the beginning, we just see him alone uh, with an infant. And he's uh, caring for the infant. And uh, Claire Denis makes uh, films that are both uh, some films that are very uh, just sort of very beautiful. Some films that are very disturbing, like Trouble Every Day or Intruders. And this is beautiful and disturbing in you know, different different ways at different moments. And it, as you note, it is kind of ironic that it has such a similarity to another film on my pinnacle list. And uh, it's uh, it has this sort of uh, hypnotic quality. Uh, Patterson really delivers a an intense uh, kind of moving performance, especially with his uh, efforts to keep this child alive. And uh, again, there are images in it, uh, some of them quite disturbing, uh, that uh, really sear their way uh, into your memory. And uh, uh, Denis has always been a favorite of mine. And, and uh, this is another uh, pinnacle for uh, her storied career. Fantastic. Well, uh, before we ourselves are uh, trapped on a spaceship, even one with a food court or Robert Pattinson hurtling into the void, let us hurtle into a commercial and then sneak back in for the rest of the double feature. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. 
The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? We're back in the Cinema Hut talking about the Toronto International Film Festival. We've passed all of the pinnacles. It's like um, uh, our very own Himalayas back there. And now we are merely in movies that are so good that Robin is personally recommending them to you. So, Robin, let's uh, burn through some of this 8 million film list that you have. Uh, link in the show notes, as always. We'll start with uh, another of your uh, of your pen pal from this festival, Juliette Benoche. Uh, films, uh, done by Naomi Kawasi in Japan called Vision. And, uh, Julia Binoche is in Japan, so fun follows when? Hijinks ensue? What's going on? This is a, a, probably the gentlest trippy mind bender you could ever imagine. And it's, uh, another ambiguity is the order of the day in this one as well, but it's not a, a suspense plot so f- much as well, I don't even know how to describe it, but uh, Julie Pinoche uh, comes to this uh, mountainous forest in Japan. She meets a kind of forester guy there, and she is looking for vision, the herb that perhaps only manifests every thousand years and cures all human heartache. Whoa! Uh, and it's sort of fragmented <laughs> I, 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 time. I hear our audience saying they know of a herb that does the same thing. <laughs> well, it's you know, this seems to be uh, more of a transcend, even more transcendent. Wow! Well, there and you go. So, uh, this is one of those films that sort of breaks down reality as you go along, but in, usually you imagine those as being very overtly psychedelic, or and this one is just sort of gentle and and uh and questioning and uh, uh in tune with nature and and one of the questions that you begin to grapple with is how many of these characters are nature spirits <laughs> how many <laughs> of them are human that's, that's such a What's, common question that you have to ask it is such a common question so uh it is a, a really uh unique vision from a again from a filmmaker whose work I've uh, admired in the past she did the film sweet bean which is a much more conventional sort of beautiful film as a, and it has also done uh, other things that are in, in this more sort of mystical, visionary vein, but this is really the apotheosis of, of her style for that one. So, uh, not a conventional, uh, pacing, uh, there's no action, there's no suspense, uh, but, uh, it is, uh, a, a definitely a, a mystical, uh, if not magical film, uh, in and of itself. Okay. Um, if, uh, people are recalling our discussion of the Protong back in the day, Zukalski's thesis of Neanderthal infiltrators, this is kind of the comedy version of this or the dramatic, uh, uh, uh sort of the day-to-day drama version of this. It's Border, uh, from Sweden, directed by Ali Abbasi, and it's about Neanderthals who are among us okay, I'm, with I'm, mislead- I'm deliberately misleading you. Are but you? When you see uh, it, so it's like a naturalistic drama, except the lead character has Neanderthalish facial features. She works as a customs official, and because she can smell people's fear and shame, she's really good at that job. Right. And so she's uh, uh, an expert at letting uh, the her uh, partner know when someone coming through, when there's something wrong with them. And uh, she can even, like, smell the smart card in somebody's phone that's loaded with uh, uh, child pornography. She's uh, 
but she's clearly an outsider in this world. Um, and although, you know, obviously the makeup she's in, which is quite good, is outlandish, the film is mostly shot as a naturalistic drama. Um, and anyway, eventually, uh, someone else, a, ma- a, a, a male or seeming male comes along who, who looks uh, like her and, uh, she begins to become less interested in the husband who takes her for granted and uh, more interested. Because he's not shaggy enough. You, you just can't win, husbands. Well, you know, if he was, uh, you know, not uh, stepping out on her and showed her some consideration, perhaps she would stick with the Perhaps husband. she would but overlook his lack of shagginess. All right. It's not just a, a, a physical bond we're talking about here. But uh, so the the comparison that has been made is uh, to Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, who did the, the lobster, which is sort of a a kind of a extra realist magical realism. And I suppose that sort of applies, but this is, again, it's not a, a, a take on somebody else's style. It's its own unique style. And we discover uh, they, they turn out who they turn out to be is not Neanderthals. I'll tell you that. All right. uh, but uh, it's definitely uh, puts it uh, deep in Cardis territory. So it's a very interesting comic drama uh, fable, uh, exercise in weirdness that, uh, I, I would highly recommend that you check out. And it does have a release. So, uh, look for that in theaters. All right. Well, uh, this one, I hope we don't have to over explain because if we over explain cyberpunk violent cop time travel movie, then we've lost. Uh, Cities of Last Things uh, from Taiwan, directed by Ho Wei Ding. Uh, what else is going on besides the that uh, bacon avocado cheeseburger of of, of a subject matter? Right. So uh, it starts off with you see this uh, embittered ex cop in a cyberpunk future, and he uh, goes on a, a violent, horrible, uh, disturbing rampage. And then, rather than just, uh, it's not actual time travel per se, but just you then move backwards in time. Oh, uh, we flashback. Yeah, so it's it's uh, to see him uh, as a young man, and then there's another uh, flashback, and uh, I guess it's not a huge spoiler to say it turns out that this flashback, which initially seems unrelated, also is heavily related to <laughs> that, that, his life. Ho, Ho doesn't just add another movie into the middle because he was bored. Okay, there's a so bit where just, you start to think, is that what's happening? But no. Um, it's and it's so, just a cyberpunk cop thriller. Right, so imagine uh, Wong Kar-wise... Uh, and, and the first ch- bit is sort of thrillerish, and then the next bits are drama. So right. imagine Chungking Express, where the, uh, three vignettes are actually narrative related to each other, and the first one is set in the future. There we um, go. So I that's can't, can't ask things. for a, that. That's a different bacon avocado cheeseburger and a one that's just as delicious exactly as one that so. I thought it was going to be about. Now, uh, Ken, this one's up your alley. Legend of the Demon Cat by uh, Chen Kage. I'm listening. So this is uh, an incredible phantasmagoria of uh, big, expensive uh, sets and production value using... Uh, uh, Chen was uh, at the screening and said that the sets took... Uh, four years to build, which included time for the trees around them that they planted to grow. <laughs> That's old school Hollywood. That's yes. like uh, a Von Stroheim level of crazy. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, sort of uh, super bright technicolor, Michael Powell kind of colors, lots of red and swooping camera. And uh, it's all about the nature of illusion, which is uh, brought out uh, not only in the theme, but in uh, sort of uh, wild CGI sequences. So uh, it is... Uh, you know, uh, it's not a film of, of deep characterization or a plot that you're going to, uh, remember fondly, but it is a, a 
brilliant exploration of the plasticity of, of cinema, uh, that, uh, and, and, uh, you know, there's a moment where the CGI cat, uh, reacts to something and you're moved by its performance. So there we go. Uh, it is, uh, that's well worth checking out. And then that's from a non cat owner people. Uh, so we <laughs> yeah. set, yes. set it on hard. And, uh, in, uh, sort of the other side of the animals and nature and people coin, which maybe is what a lot of this turns out to be, uh, Edge of the Knife, uh, Canada, Gwai Edenshaw and Helen Haig-Brown making a movie, uh, a Canadian Western, which means that the giant Canadian wilderness will get in you, uh, in this case, literally, right? Uh, well, it's, it's Western in that it is the, the westernmost part of Canada, but, uh, if you're picturing, you know, buttes or, uh, uh, scrubland or anything, uh, it's the opposite of that. It's in, it's set in the Haida Gwaii in the depth of the, uh, coniferous rainforest. And so this is the first film made in the Haida language, uh, which they had to teach to most of the cast, at least enough to deliver their lines, because, mm-hmm. uh, up until this point, there are basically two dozen people who still speak that language. And so it was part and of I assume a, entirely a Haida cast then. Uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily, they might have had people from other indigenous cultures but, who but came in. But First Nations cast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, it is, uh, if anyone has seen, uh, Atanarjurat, the fast runner, it's, uh, a little bit similar to that in so far as, uh, those folks helped produce this. They got the, but it, it's, it's a production of the Haida community at the very beginning where the, uh, studio logos would normally appear. There's the crest for like the, a particular band council and an, uh, a sort of a, a pan Haida organization. And, uh, at any rate, it's a, uh, dramatization of a, uh, well-known uh, myth in Haida culture. And it's about a, a, a hunter who makes a, a terrible mistake and, uh, is then uh, washed ashore and becomes a, and I'm undoubtedly mispronouncing this, uh, in a, uh, Gaxiad or wild man. And so, mm. uh, he undergoes a, a monstrous transformation, but, uh, it's, uh, and if you read the description, you're going to go, Oh yeah, this is a Wendigo story. Well, turns out that this particular, uh, uh, wild man is, is not so much like Wendigo. Um, and so it's a visually, uh, stunning, abs- uh, absorbing, uh, drop into, uh, uh, Haida culture that I would, uh, highly recommend. So, uh, back across the Pacific for us, we're not going to go, uh, east. We shall go west, back to the east, uh, and we're going to go to Japan, uh, Samurai Times. So, and the movie is called Killing. So again, I think I've sold it. Uh, Shinya Tsukamoto is the director. Uh, is there more to the story of Samurai? Uh, right. So Shinya, uh, Tsukamoto, uh, is another, uh, festival, uh, favorite over the years. He, uh, first burst onto the scene with, uh, Iron Man and Iron Man 2 T- Tetsuo, uh, this incredible sort of, uh, pulsing, disturbing style. I also did Tokyo Fist and this, he basically, he, this is his first samurai film and he brings that, uh, style of super intense, uh, uh, sort of body horror to a, uh, what other, under anybody else's hands would be a fairly typical, story of a uh, young uh, ronin who encounters an older master and uh, they're ready to go to Edo to uh, to fight in the wars but before that happens uh, there are uh, bandits to deal with and it turns out that although the uh, younger uh, samurai is extremely skilled he lacks the instinct for you got it killing and killing. so uh, no, this is uh, very much Not a sort good. of uh, thudding 
uh, a sensory experience, uh, and uh, it's sort of a, a horror samurai film, uh, although there's nothing supernatural about it. It's body horror yes. samurai film. Well, having managed to screw up uh, two premises already, I'm not even going to try to summarize this one, but the movie is Diamantino. It's from Portugal and directed by Gabriel Abrantes and Daniel Schmidt, and it's about a soccer star and a conspiracy, and there are idiots. That's what I know. Robin, yes. tell me so why this is a- everyone wants to see this, not just me. So this is a kooky satire, and basically uh, D- Diamantino is, a, is the greatest... Uh, soccer or I guess rather football star of, of Portugal. Uh, he's in the World Cup. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, his secret of victory is that he imagines himself when he's got a breakaway, uh, and headed for the net to be surrounded by clouds and giant fluffy puppies. But, uh, something goes wrong. He acquires a political consciousness surrounding refugees and he loses his contact with the giant, uh, puppy realm. And, uh, and a meanwhile, a an ethno nationalist conspiracy is swirling around him, uh, in which his uh, his terrible uh, uh, twin sisters are seeking to uh, use him for dire political ends, and it's a uh, sort of a, a throwback to sort of an older, crazier uh, style of uh, film that uh, I sort of feels like a '90s uh, nutty sort of uh, midnight art exploitation film that, uh, right. was really fun. But or the, like uh, something that would just be made straight up in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the lead actor, uh, Carlotta Cotto is like, he's joins the all-star history of, uh, hilarious dim bulbs, uh, in cinema. And so, uh, if you want to, uh, see something, uh, that is, uh, uh, back to, uh, some, uh, old fashioned loosey goosey craziness with a, uh, uh, a, None too subtle, because it shouldn't be subtle political message. Uh, check out Diamantino. All right. Uh, and with that, uh, although obviously there are, you saw some like 45 films this year? Uh, yeah, I saw uh, 44 and a half. There's one of them I had to slip out of early because they changed the times on me, uh, which spares them having gotten a bad review. So. Yeah, take that <laughs> film. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, you can see the full list, uh, over on my blog or from the link in the show notes. Uh, there's lots of stuff to uh, check out as it comes out in theater- theaters or on streaming or on Netflix or if your library system allows you to subscribe to the new streaming service Canopy with a K, uh, look into that, that they have a, a great source of, uh, sort of more, a uh, lot of film festival sort of titles, the kind of things that play the festival circuit, but otherwise, uh, don't come around. So that's something to uh, look into if your library offers that and you are interested in well, this there we kind go. of movie. Uh, so with that, uh, we've sent everyone off with their uh, popcorn and their slushy uh, to uh, see what they can see in the next year and a half. And we will be back in the hut or back in perhaps a whole different hut after this.
Ken, what happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep our breaks between screenings clear by joining such Patreon backers as... Mika Raksanen. Trung Boy. Wayne Rossi. Dave Choate. And Matt Farr. The rattle of dice, the crunch of miniatures, the thunk of Doritos tell us that we're once more in the ever-cozy confines of the Gaming Hut. And this time around in the Gaming Hut, I am going to steal a question uh, posed to us by a questioner at what? the Game Master Masterclass uh, held uh, at Fan Expo uh, over the Labor Day weekend because it was... Uh, a, a good question, B, a perennial question, and C, a perennial question that I don't think we've ever addressed on the Holy show. Holy cats. And so the question is, uh, you have a, uh, a character, an NPC is going to suddenly appear. Uh, he has information to give. Uh, you know, let's say some sort of, you know, weirdo cyborg death angel who's, who's appearing and, you would uh, know that the story will be richer and more fun, and particularly one of the players will have more fun if they talk to the weirdo cyborg death angel. But you also know that there's another player in your group. Let's say he's playing the barbarian, whereas the talkative character is, let's say, the sorcerer. Um, the That player is going to go, well, I hit it. I hit it with my axe. And if you go, no, 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 I want to, no, axe faster than talk. Hit it, hit with axe. So how do you... Uh, Solve this uh, this dilemma and make it possible for the uh, talky player to talk to the uh, talky NPC slash monster before the hitty player decides to just let's go to the fight and skip all the things where we learn the stuff we need to know to have the rest of the adventure. Ken? Well, I mean, the classic way that you do this in superhero stories or whatever is that when the cyborg death angel shows up, it has brought a charm from the future or it has powers or something and it time freezes everybody or it uh, puts them in the nest of invisible spider webs or something happens to prevent uh, physical action. Uh, and it can be just a manifestation of the thing that that's just one of the powers you're going to have to overcome when you do decide to hit it, or it can be a one time artifact use, or it can be, um, uh, something of that, of that sort, but the thing just has the power to stop people attacking it. And since the goal of the thing in the story is to get the exposition out, 
if the characters have to spend a couple of rounds figuring out how to break the spell that it used, you can still have the talk and then Barbarian can hit and you can kill the, the NPC who you might in a, in maybe a better world have been able to recruit to your side or, or talk into going to attacking the bad guy instead of you. Uh, but, but that, you know, you only need a couple of rounds for a, for a dialogue to happen and then all the hitting in the world, uh, can occur. So it doesn't have to be that powerful a thing. But if you show up and everyone rolls save versus paralysis and you don't tell them what the number is, oh, that's too bad. Unless barbarian gets a natural 20, you're probably okay. Right. But of course, you know that the barbarian player will get a natural 20 because. Well, I've solved 95% of the damn problem. Robin, you solved the other 5%. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's the, the basic answer is to, if you know ahead of time that, uh, the, uh, character is going to, uh, you know, w- w- want to just start the fight. Um, you can introduce all, you know, whatever plot device you want for that. You want to make sure that it doesn't seem so interesting an obstacle that the character who would otherwise be talking to the guy then starts also working on how to knock down the force field or, uh, overcome the paralysis or, uh, whatever. The question is what you then do the next time, uh, that if you only ever want to have uh, the uh, character talk to uh, the one cyborg death angel one time, and then the rest of all of your gaming, it's okay. If it just goes straight to the fight, uh, then then you're good. But, of course, this is sort of an, an ongoing problem. So you can come up with all sorts of different uh, versions of this sort of logical setup that prevents them from attacking. You can also set it up so that the talky character meets the death cyborg uh, angel alone uh, outside of the uh, hitting distance of the uh, characters who are going to want to go straight to a fight or has some way of, uh, you know, communicating with you that is uh, indirect. He, you know, he calls you on his cyborg uh, death phone. And that is definitely one way to do it. The challenge is that if you set it up so that the, uh, you know, paralyzing characters all the time gives uh, can uh, upset a certain type of player, player who's likely to be the, the, uh, the player type. who hits the barbarian and likes to hit things. And, uh, you know, it's certainly true that that is a very obvious, you know, GM thumb on the scale. So the other way you could do it is to break character a little bit and say that, uh, we're in a comic book universe. And guess what? There can be extensive monologue and use of word balloons. And once all that is done, you will still get to hit him and you will not lose any advantage uh, because, of course, uh, a lot of games, uh, I think it's sort of gone away a bit now. But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, surprise is a huge advantage in the game. Uh, if the if you're giving the barbarian a big tactical advantage, if he just uh, hits the death angel and then you don't let him do that. Uh, that's going to be, you know, doubly frustrating. Not only does he have to listen to a bunch of talk and exposition, but that the cool thing that he wanted to do is taken away from them. So uh, another thing to think about is ways that once you do break through the uh, either the authorial advice that just allows a certain amount of dialogue to happen before the fight or uh, whether they overcome the puzzle or, or what have you, you may want to, you know, make clear to the player what it is that you're doing, that the because uh, the player thinks that the obvious smart thing to do is to hit them right away and gain surprise, whereas it's a more interesting story if there's some dialogue exchange. So you could just sort of say that rather than continually frustrating that player again and again. Oh, another force field guy? This is the seventh force field guy in a row. Yeah. 
Um, so you need to, uh, I mean, first of all, your job as the GM is to make that first batch of dialogue with the cyborg death angel, not just interesting and fun because you're not going to capture the barbarian necessarily with interesting dialogue. As you say, maybe they're, they're not really there for that, but you have to make the clear benefits of having listened to that angel, uh, to the death angels strong enough that the next time something shows up when the sorcerer says, maybe we should talk to it first. The barbarian is at least that's in their mental universe. They're like, well, yeah, we did get the secret way to murder that one guy and his eyes really popped when we did. So that was pretty great. Um, you have to make sure that the, that the game is worth the candle because otherwise you're not trying to save, um, uh, the spirit of dialogue. You're trying to Elminster things by having your uh, pet NPC show up and get to declaim. And that's nonsense. I mean, you have to be contributing, uh, to the, not just the atmosphere with the, with the funness of the uh, interplay, but also you have to be, you know, you, you have to pay for what you, what you did in, in terms of, of story juice. And if the, the first death angel didn't do that, then it's much harder to believe that, that the barbarian is wrong necessarily to want to whack everyone with an axe because after all, the game is literally about whacking people with axes. That's what's on the cover. So I think that the other thing that you can do is involve, uh, if you've got a specific player that you're trying to wire around, look at their character and say, what, what's the kind of person that this barbarian would not attack first? And maybe it's an L- a trusted elder from their tribe. And so the, the next guy shows up as that, or they show up and they, and they have a, a totem from the elder of their tribe and, or they're coming and they're speaking directly to the barbarian and they're trying to ask them for help and advice, you know, if the problem is the barbarian's going to feel excluded from a talky scene, make the scene about the barbarian a couple of times so that the barbarian again, uh, he's still there to axe death angels, uh, when their head, when their heads are turned or after they've finished blathering, but that the whole game as a whole is enriched because they've got another tool in their bag. And that tool is often as productive, if not as viscerally fun in the moment as a uh, whacking a guy with a great um, uh, seven or eight pounds of wrought iron. Right. And other ways to, uh, to look at this are to present this new character who shows up to uh, engage in dialogue with some of the players as not an immediate threat, right? If a weirdo death angel just teleports in, it is not irrational for the barbarian to want to hit them with an axe yeah. because they figure that a death angel be <laughs> yeah. suddenly appearing. They want the advantage of surprise. And so you have to have those characters again, be sneakier about how they approach and make sure that it is uh, done in a more non-threatening way. And that uh, also gets you away from the thing where I want to be hitting, but you're stopping me from the hitting in an obvious plot device situation to, you know, so they come in by surprise or they, you know, they sneak into the camp at night or, uh, again, uh, that gets us back to, you know, they, if the whole point is just to have a dialogue scene, uh, find another way to have dialogue scenes for the characters who like them that don't seem to be pitting a tactical advantage in the fight part of the game against, uh, character development and, and, uh, and talking and interaction and make sure that those, you know, uh, work together. And so, Another way to do that is, as you suggest, sort of train the uh, more uh, immediately hitty characters to think of things as, oh, well, sometimes there are advantages in talking to people. But, you you know, you might want to frame the scene so this is more obviously a uh, a talking scene that might lead to a hitting scene. And to look at, uh, you know, genre sources to see, you know, in confrontations between the bad guys and the heroes where they actually talk to each other, how do those generally work? Well... Often they take place 
at a location where the heroes are constrained from attacking them. So, you know, the Bond villain uh, meets uh, Bond at a casino where he can't just open fire and, and start killing everybody. So your original encounter with the Death Cyborg, you know, might be in a busy square with lots of innocent bystanders or uh, there's the old, you know, sort of uh, hostage situation thing where you have to talk to the bad guy because the bad guy has someone or something that they're threatening uh, that you, you know, you need to approach them in a sneakier manner, that this is not your moment uh, to hit. So the idea of, uh, I've tried to decouple the scenes from we talk to the death angel and then we fight it to here's a scene where we talk to the death angel and then here's a scene where the barbarian uh, then gets to uncork the axe. Right. And even it, it can be a matter of, um, when, uh, the death angel shows up and maybe they cast paralysis or maybe they don't, maybe they're not a death angel, maybe there's something else. You immediately begin by saying to the barbarian, roll wisdom. And the, okay. Uh, and so the barbarian rolls wisdom and it's like, um, well, you have heard legends of this kind of thing, uh, back in your tribe or you've, uh, you know, fought a small one of these, uh, on a crag before you joined the party or something like that. You have some knowledge of the thing that tells you as the clever skulking barbarian, uh, that this thing has a weak spot. But it, it, it's, uh, it, the, the frontal attack is, is, is not the weak spot. The weak spot is X thus and so. Something that they have to do, they have to sneak around and get behind it, or they have to do some kind of a, of a, of a, of an ambush in order to, uh, nail the thing. And that takes the surprise element that they may be looking forward to, and it puts them in their, in their control, you can still unleash when you want to just a first round attack is a bad attack, but you know it because you're a barbarian and uh city folk wouldn't know that they would just try and shoot it with their feet crossbow. Maybe something like that, where you're bringing again, the barbarians uh, uh character and nature into it in an alliance, as opposed to an opposition. Uh Right. And so, and, and again, uh an, another solution that moves us more in the direction of breaking the fourth wall and making it clear, to the uh, character that uh, the player that you're not just, you know, clamping down on the thing that they find fun. You can say, okay, go ahead and roll. Oh, look, that was an incredible attack roll. You just got, well, that will be your hit when you make it in a few moments. But in the meantime, some dialogue will occur if anyone wants to talk to them. And so that shows that player that they're uh, still going to get what they want. And, and uh, you know, that they're not being thwarted. They're just being, asked to, uh, as a player, not the character to hold off for a sec so that other right. people can have uh, fun things happen. So that uh, you're, instead of saying no, you're saying yes, but, which of course yeah. is the, the key to a, a lot of uh, great jamming. And uh, on that note, I think we can uh, head through this commercial and see what lurks on the other side. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes 
two full-color rule books. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear, combat, dossiers. The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World. And of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time for that most uh, sinister of corners, the conspiracy corner. The corner where we have a corkboard up on the wall, all sorts of red threads, uh, connecting all kinds of stuff. And this time, uh, speaking of things that it's a surprise we haven't covered yet, I think we've talked about covering this topic on, in past, uh, episodes, but we've never gotten to it before. So, uh, and this is something that touches on role playing history as well. It's the satanic panic, the, uh, wave, uh, in, uh, the eighties and early nineties of, uh, uh, hyper-exaggerated concern over impossible satanic ritual abuse uh, that uh, led to a lot of people uh, being uh, falsely imprisoned uh, and their lives ruined, and some of them imprisoned uh, for a very long time. Uh, so, Ken, uh, do you want to lay sort of the, the cultural groundwork for what made the satanic panic possible? When does the idea that there are literal Satanists doing uh, uh, horrible, murderous uh, things begin to seem possible for enough people, for uh, folks to wind up in jail. I'm going to say that the thing that sort of sets the groundwork, and it, this is a classic moral panic, and these things blow up in every culture in the world. It's something humanity is just prone to. Right. And America, i got to say... You guys have perfected this one, the moral Well, panic. I mean, when you, when you start with the Salem Witch Trials, you really have to sort of stay in your game. It's, yeah. it's like the it's like the Packers. You're the champions beginning. you got to stay champs throughout. Um, but the uh, sort of the beginning, I think, that sort of lets people begin to think this, I'm going to say is the Manson killings. Charles Manson was not, as far as anyone can tell, a Satanist. He, he was a Mansonist. Was, he was a Mansonist. Uh, but he had virtually all the other qualities that people are sort of ascribing to Satan, Satanic killers. Um, he had this sort of the gang of brainwashed youths around him. They were involved in murder and it was a weird ritual and it was stuff people didn't understand and it was, uh, aimed directly at the sort of, um, uh, uh, home and hearth and, uh, sacred, uh, nature of the, of the house and family in a way, uh, because of Manson's, uh, particular set of bizarre antinomian beliefs. So I think Manson sort of begins this big, this big sort of awareness that, you know, murdering is not just straight up murdering anymore, that there's crazy murdering now, um, in, in the, in the world. And then while that's still sort of echoing in the public consciousness, uh, the movie The Exorcist makes half a billion dollars at the box office in 1973. And I think that is what, because the things that you need for a moral panic to happen, first, you have to have a cultural substrate of people believing that X sort of thing is possible. And second, you have to have social reward for spreading it. And that's what the kids had in Salem is that uh, if they, you know, accused people of witchcraft and rolled around and made faces, they didn't have to do stupid chores. So they and they got attention from everybody. So that's what was going on in Salem, basically. Uh the similar effect, only on a societal level, is, oh, we know that there are these sort of sub subterranean killers out amongst us. Holy crap, Satan is real and he's box office. And so uh, The Exorcist, I think, really sort of turns America uh, relatively secular 
um, uh, horror culture and of uh, uh, believing in horrors back into its good old fashioned old time religion horror culture for about a decade and a half. Uh, and I, you know, I, it's just a fantastic movie. It's based on a terrific novel and it does a really great job of sort of making Satan real right there on the screen. Uh, the sort of the third leg of this stool, the short stumpy leg of the stool is a guy named Mike Warnke, who was a, well, uh, let's, let's say, um, uh, a performative, uh, speaker. Uh, he, uh, wrote a book in 1972 called The Satan Seller, in which he said, uh, that before, uh, in the 60s, the evil, evil 60s, he was a high priest of Satan and his satanic ring got up to orgies and, and trouble and they had, uh, kidnap and they kidnapped people and they raped people and they had a, a cult and, uh, that, uh, he went to Vietnam and that cleared him up and then he found Jesus and everything was great. And if you could just, uh, find Jesus, maybe you don't have all the bad problems that he had of, of having literally been in the grip of Satan, but your life would be better. And that story, uh, the book comes out in 1972, Exorcist comes out in 73. Suddenly Mike Warnke is the big dog on the evangelical talk circuit and a third of America is evangelical Protestants, basically. So right. suddenly and you were talking about social reward for spreading these things. Well, there's also financial reward. If you have a book that you're selling or if you're a professional speaker on a tour. Exactly. And it did not take super long for more people to sort of pile onto that Mike Warnke bandwagon with their own. Oh, I was a Satanist priest. Oh, I did this. Oh, I'm, you know, such and such. Or suddenly you got these guys who are like, police uh officials in some way or prosecutors in uh texas or some other place where evangelical protestantism is bred into the culture they'll have books how you can tell if there's satanists in your town and these started to sort of drift out in the 80s by which time of course we've had the beginnings of the satanic ritual abuse the, the sort of the, the beginnings of the accusations that start um, it begins with a confession from someone named michelle smith who did a, mem- a recovered memory uh, sort of story about how she was abused by Satanists. Right, and, and that's that's 1980. That's the book Michelle Remembers. Uh, and her husband was a psychiatrist who should have known better, uh, <laughs> Lawrence Padzer, and he's, uh, ed- if anything, more complicit in this nonsense than she is. Uh, but there we are. They dump that out into this uh, churning uh, social royal, which is also, again, uh after the sixties and after the sort of malaise of the seventies is desperately trying to go back and cling to, uh, true verities like God is better than the devil and America is better than the commies and all the other good stuff that, that believing normally does no harm. But when you are, uh, an excited, crazy person with huge financial rewards involved, well, fun follows one. Right. And especially when you start appointing yourself as an expert investigator and extractor of confessions, see, uh, previous centuries of historical precedent, uh, people start to get uh, accused. And here, instead of being accused of, you know, talking to black cats on the Sabbath and and dancing nude with the devil, you're accused of horrific acts of child abuse. So the uh, famous story of case that really uh, there's a Bakersfield, California daycare. Uh, They're accused in 1980 and uh, 26 people wind up being jailed. Uh, in the trials that result between 84 and 86, and one person spends uh, 20 years in prison. 1983, you've got uh, an even more famous case, the McMartin daycare case, uh, which I guess is famous because eventually, <laughs> after six years of trial, the, the case justice collapses. system <laughs> figured out that there was 
no substantial reality to the accusations. And that sort of begins to break the back of it in the law enforcement community, the, although it continues as a cultural element. And while it's uh, before McMartin, but after uh, the Bakersfield case and during the big Mike Warnke hoopla, uh, a lady named Pat Pulling decides that teens are into bad stuff. Uh, heavy metal uh, was uh, was big in the early 80s. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was big in the early 80s. Lots of things that Pat Pulling disapproved of for lots of other reasons uh, were going well, on. And specifically, and, her, her son uh, yeah. committed suicide, shot himself yeah. in the chest, and she's, uh, in her grief, she's looking for... For uh, reasons. For a reason, and the reason she picks is Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Mm-hmm. And so she forms bad, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, and is... Uh, pretty much single-handedly responsible for onrushing the satanic panic into uh, our world, the world of role-playing games. And uh, it seems absurd now, uh, but if you were trying to be a gamer in the Deep South during that period, you know, I've spoken to people who, well, yeah, the, the mayor and the police just closed our game store because it was deemed to be satanic. Or, you know, I wasn't uh, able to uh, let people know that that's that I was interested in gaming because it was, you know, people literally believed, uh, that it was satanic. And, uh, my, uh, my, one of my players in my campaign, he, he came to the game one day and he said, um, uh, oh, my mom, uh, found out about this, uh, Satan stuff. And she wanted to be very clear that I was not playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I said, no, no, we're playing Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> Yeah, and so she said, well, as long as you're not playing way Dungeons less and Dragons. To do with rites and rituals and exactly. things from yeah. beyond. Not, no black magic there, just geometry. Yeah. I, had, I have another personal anecdote. This is not, you know, I suffered because of the satanic panic. It's kind of the opposite. But uh, there was a group called Focus on the Family that was all very, very concerned with all manner of things. Uh, the, I, I think their big focus was um, uh, being the pro-life movement, but they also you know, had a finger in a lot of these social pies. And in the eighties, they had a pamphlet that uh, they published called Dungeons and Dragons, only a game. And you, and kids may remember the chick tract on the same topic, but uh, they were, uh, they were very concerned. And, but most of their stuff, like I say, was uh, conventional social conservative, uh, hardcore social conservatism. My father was the chairman of the Oklahoma County Republican party. And so they called him and said, we have literature. We'd like to distribute at the, at the County convention. And, and he said, well, tell me about the literature. And they said, we have something about how abortion is bad. He says, fine. Something about how, um, you know, I forget, prayer in school should be allowed. Okay, fine. And we have pamphlets about uh, how Dungeons and Dragons is bad. He says, well, you're going to probably want to give one of those to my son, the Dungeon Master. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then they hung up. But uh, they did, in fact, bring them to the thing. And so I gathered up a, a dozen of those pamphlets and distributed them at the game and said, all right, it's on you now. You've been you've been informed. Yes. My, my mom also had to set some concerned church folk straight uh, much later in my life when I was like I was way, uh, you know, long gone from home and this was my job, mm-hmm. you know, so that still uh, this still resonates in those circles. And uh, lest we give the impression that this is only a conservative phenomenon, uh, Janet Reno yeah. uh, prosecuted a 1982 case in which uh, people were were ridiculously accused of uh, ritual abuse cases. Oh, abusive so, law enforcement is one of those uh, issues that crosses political uh, boundaries. It right. uh, brings us and, together as a people. And doing rash things because you're worried about the kids. Uh, that was not Jan Reno's last time doing that. No, it was not. Um, <laughs> although she set fewer people on fire. Uh, but talk about bringing it old school, right? 
moral panics indeed. Um, so yeah, the, uh, eventually, um, the psych- psychiatric profession, uh, air quotes uh, uh, abounding said, Oh, recovered memory is actually bogus. That's on us. And it slowly has become uh, less credible to start having recovered memory testimony. This is the equivalent of when Cotton Mather wrote an impassioned right. defense of spectral testimony where there's no hard evidence that they're, a, uh, uh, that they're a, uh, uh, witch. No one has seen them witching. No one has seen them out on the hillside, but a devil has said that they did. And that's, that's good enough. The uh, spectral testimony and recovered memory are practically kissing cousins. They're descendants. Uh, on the same tree. And in the modern context that we've discussed before, uh, what sort of memories you recover depends on, on which, uh, psychotherapist is uh, instilling, uh, fantastic memories into you. So you may in this case be convinced that, uh, the abuse you suffered took place in a, a ritual satanic context. You might be, uh, convinced that, uh, you suffered abuse that you uh, did not in fact suffer. You may be convinced that uh, you have multiple personalities or of course that you are routinely abducted by grays by, by, by delightful aliens. Yes. Yeah. And so the, um, uh, the, the sort of the, the high watermark of it is in the mid eighties. And then in the nineties, the, the sort of reaction begins to set in, although there's still uh, plenty of individual cases uh, down into uh, the mid nineties where the accusation of Satanism credible or uncredible is enough to convict people of horrible crimes. Right. So you've got Dan and Fran Keller in 91 in El Paso who uh, were exonerated after each served 21 years in prison. That case was in 91. And of course in 93 is the case of the West Memphis three where these kids were into uh, metal. Uh, therefore it's one of those cases of small town law enforcement a horrible crime takes place and you you look for the weirdos mm-hmm. and in any other sort of cultural milieu, if they had been the outsiders with any other patina on that, I'm sure they would also have been railroaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, it was railroaded on the, the grounds that they were um, teen metal fans, which I guess enabled at least a bunch of uh, rock stars with money to help uh, continue to fund the defense until they were exonerated yeah so the i mean i think that they were released with suspended sentences i don't think they've technically been legally exonerated per se i mean they're out of prison which is great right. but there's still i mean if i'm, I'm th- there are probably still people in west memphis arkansas that are mad as heck that justice was overturned here and many of them i think are cops so yeah so the uh west memphis three actually entered alfred please uh, and gotten suspended sentences so they were able to plead out in a way that maintained their innocence and the prosecutors uh, were able to say, well, we could still convict you. But, of course, the, the undercurrent there was, but maybe we shouldn't. So it was mm-hmm. a, there was a big face-saving thing, not a full exoneration. And they right. got out of prison, which was the important thing. Uh, yeah, it's a... It's a, it's a, it's not a great situation. It's not a great look for anybody. That was very, very scary to the uh, White Wolf guys, of course, because one of the things that the kids were kind of into was Vampire the Masquerade. They weren't super into it, but they, I think one of them played it or something. And so, uh, I remember, uh, my, my buddies at White Wolf being terrified that this was going to be their bothered about Dungeons and Dragons case and it was all going to blow up and people were going to be shutting down Camarilla meetings. Um, but it didn't happen. I mean, thank God. I mean, it's it's, right. it's a shame to say, thank God it was only a few isolated cases, but it could have been much worse. And uh, that is this, and that's another way you can tell it's a moral panic is that everyone sort of after one of these is over feels uh, really embarrassed and doesn't want to talk about it again. And bringing up a case 
it makes you actually look um, uh, worse and uh, and more terrible. I want to mention in this context, if you're trying, you know, on the, hey, uh, guys, are you doing a gaming podcast or a feel bad podcast? I want to tell you that there's a book by a guy named Maury Terry, who was an investigative reporter, and he wrote a book called The Ultimate Evil, which took all of these serial killers. And he said, the common theme in them is that Satan is behind it. And he connected it to this sort of weird, creepy cult called the Process Church, which was a weird, creepy cult. I mean, let's be fair there. But I don't think they were into murdering anybody. And they certainly weren't into satanic ritual abuse. But he sort of connects it all in this big, dramatic Satan story. So if you are playing a game set in the 1980s and you want there to be a genuine satanic conspiracy that, among other things, is causing this panic as a distraction, you can use Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, as your sort of uh, groundwork for it. And since the people he's indicting are not nice day- daycare people, but are actual serial killers, you don't have to feel super bad about uh, riffing off of his uh, general structure. So there's a documentary called Satan Lives, uh, which uh, puts forward the theory, uh, which I find uh, kind of interesting, is that the uh, replacement for the uh, satanic panic was Sharia law panic that within the same circles that after uh, particularly after 9-11 the concern then switched to uh, the idea that there were secret Muslims everywhere who had the actual uh, possible uh, power in American society to in the near future switch everyone over to uh, hardcore Saudi Arabia style uh, Muslim observance which structurally has the same uh, purpose and function and travels through the same circles, uh, but of course, on the surface, is completely different. Uh, but now, uh, we see things uh, kind of going back again in the whole QAnon uh, theory. There are people, you know, uh, today, as we recorded, there are people who are being arrested on the Texas border for a campaign of nuttery in which they uh, uh, support their criminality by uh, arguing that they're uh, protecting uh, rafts of children of which there is no evidence uh, from being uh, uh, abused by a uh, now by part of the deep state because this whole uh, every conspiracy theory now is melded together into one and so these patterns continue over time there's always an emotional need for a, mor- a moral panic and in some cases an economic and psychological need for moral panic and it's just a question of uh, what is at hand for people to plug into to make that work and uh, the level of plausibility for uh, any of these uh, surface decorations as we've seen is is kind of low well i mean that's how you can tell it was a moral panic i mean the difference between um, uh, McCarthyism and the Venona transcripts is that McCarthy was a crazy drunk, but there were actually communists in the American government and, uh, there were no witches as far as anyone knows, uh, at Salem. So that's kind of where you can draw your line right there. If you're looking for a, for a place to, to, to put your marker down a, uh, glancing, uh, relationship with the reality. Yeah, it's always, exactly. it's always a good line to try it, and find. It, it it does help. Um, believe it or not, reality actually has a value. Um, I you know it ruins your fun, but it but it should be uh it, it should be kept in your hip pocket. And I guess on that uncharacteristic bow to realism, we should bow out of this hut and indeed out of the whole podcast uh, until next week. Stuff having once again been talked about. 
It's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent the barbarian from axing this podcast by joining such backers as... Alex Johnston. Andrew Reichart. Jeremy French. Kevin Maroney. And Noel Warford. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nobody Wants to Be a Gate. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, uh, we will talk about stuff.